You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today we have Connor McNamara here to talk to us about the struggle for Irish independence, William Mallows, and the Irish Republicans, who, by the way, are the only good Republicans. Begins with who Liam Mellows is and his funeral. Yes. Uh, but can we just go back a little? When did the English come to Ireland? Well, essentially, I suppose if you pick one start date, is the Norman invasion. These are the uh, essentially the Anglo-French, I suppose, the descendants of the French conquerors of England in the 10th century. They come to Ireland in 1167 famously to Wexford, and they conquer over maybe 100 years or so the southeast of Ireland. And so from the 12th century on, you get the emergence for about 400 years of a, of a mixed Anglophone, some English speaking with Irish speaking in the east that is linked to England through markets and through politics and so on. And then in the west, you have a Gaelic Irish speaking uh, native community in the west and in the north. The English, their penetration into Ireland was essentially east and southeast. Um, they had little interest in going west or north because of the poor economic land and because of the resistance of the native Irish. That changes again, actually, then in, in, in the early modern period, because after the Reformation, of course, the Irish remain Catholic and uh, the English are, are, are Protestant and the Scots, um, the Lowland Scottish are Presbyterian. So under the really the, the, the diameters of modern Ireland, the parameters, I should say, of modern Ireland are set in the 1600s when you have a massive scheme of transplant, transplanting of uh, English and Scottish settlers in the north and in the east of Ireland. And what it creates then is actually three distinct ethnic groups that exist in Ireland today. You get a Scottish Presbyterian community that still has a very vibrant heritage, which is uh, very much values its attachment to Britain uh, in the north of Ireland, uh, the northern Protestant uh, community. Then in the east and in the south, of course, you have the descendants of of English settlers who were Protestant, as in Episcopalian or, or Anglican. And then in the west, of course, you had the Irish native Irish Catholics, who the Max that you mentioned at the start of this conversation, the Max and the O's, I suppose. So from the 1600s on, you have these uh, dreadful clashes, you know, sporadic upheavals and uh, uprisings, right up until the 19th century and the 20th century. And, and modern Ireland and how it, I suppose, comes to maybe world, if you like, attention, certainly US, unprecedented US attention is the Great Famine of uh, the 1840s, which actually transforms American history because over the ensuing decades then you have millions of Irish, overwhelmingly Irish-speaking and English-speaking, but quite a lot of Irish-speaking poor from the West, uh, the peasants, Catholic peasants essentially, making their ways to the Northeast, Eastern United States and becoming actually an urban working class in New York, Boston, Chicago, Pennsylvania, all across the Northeast, down eventually to California. So the Irish relationship with England has always been fraught, uh, but a very important um, aspect of that relationship has been the Scottish Presbyterians. And that is really the origin of partition today. Ireland, of course, is two distinct states. Uh, In the northeast, you have Northern Ireland, founded in 1920 
And that's founded to reflect the Protestant British heritage of those Scottish and English, but overwhelmingly Scottish planters from the 1600s that are brought to Ireland and given the land of displaced Catholic natives. And then in the Republic of Ireland, we have very much initially a Catholic state emerges after a war of independence in 1921, a conservative Catholic state that values the or idealizes very much the rural poor. Uh, in, in its symbolism and its, uh, its vision of itself. So Ireland remains a partitioned and divided island, and all of this really is, is um, a direct result of colonialism and its, its relationship with, with Britain, you know? Yeah, actually, it's kind of weird. I don't know if you know, but one of the first freedom fighters of India was actually an Irish gentleman. He wrote a magazine called Calcutta Independence, and he told all the Indians to rise up and fight their English colonizers. And so the English put him in a mental hospital because clearly he yeah. had to be sane. And so what the British did to the Irish was pretty terrible. Um, so I know there were many freedom campaigns, but what was special about the one that you write about that happened in the 1900s? And... Can we also talk about the Anglican-Irish Treaty? Sure. Okay. Yeah, the Anglo-Irish Treaty is the oh, sorry, I, I don't know why I call it Anglican. I'm yeah, no, a stepping stone there. So um, there's this period of time where, that you've mentioned there, which we refer to as the Revolution in Ireland. And we're broadly talking about a period from 1913 up until 1923. And what happens really in this 10-year period, I suppose, is history speeds up in many ways. We have these huge series of interlinked events that lead to the foundation of Northern Ireland as essentially in many ways a conservative Protestant state that discriminates against this Catholic minority and the emergence of an independent uh, republic. Uh, well, it becomes a republic later. It's actually a, a Commonwealth dominion initially, the 26-county free state, over which uh, over 95% are, are Catholic, uh, conservative Catholic nationalists, actually. So the revolution that leads up to this, I suppose the key event really to, to understand the entire period is the outbreak of World War I. Because what World War I and the logic of Great Britain's participation in the war is that it's fighting and it's, it's dying, it's, it's laying down its working class principally uh, at the altar of this notion of fighting for the freedom of small nations. <laughs> Um, across uh, Central and Eastern Europe principally, yeah. of course, Belgium and likewise. But of course, that logic, when it's applied to Ireland, is very contradictory, of course, that Irish soldiers actually fight uh, in their hundreds and hundreds of thousands uh, in the Great War uh, for, for Britain, as simply as economic migrants, largely speaking. Uh, although conservative Catholic politicians uh, are very keen that Ireland plays its role because they see if the Irish fight and die for the United Kingdom, that uh, England will do the right thing, if you like, and grant independence to of Ireland. Of course they will never do the right thing. <laughs> well, it turns out to be the, the, the worst maybe political gamble in the history of, of, of Irish politics. Certainly John Redmond was the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party. And so in the midst of World War I, that now, some people might, you know, um, that don't know the period might think Ireland didn't participate. But Ireland had huge numbers of troops fighting for the United Kingdom. A small group of radicals, they were in a secret society called the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They decided that the logic of the war meant uh, that if they didn't do something 
before the war ended, that essentially the dream of a separate and independent Ireland would be completely lost. Because here was these hundreds of thousands of men enthusiastically fighting for Great Britain in a British Army uniform. So it was now or never. And that now and never happened in Dublin at Easter week in 1916. When the Irish Republican Army, the Irish Volunteers as they're initially known, it was a civilian militia. It wasn't illegal. It, it was founded on the principle of full independence for Ireland. They rise up in, in what is a doomed and hopeless revolt in many ways. Uh, but the importance of the Easter Rising in Dublin is that it's, it's symbolic importance that there were still people willing to lay down their lives for a fully free and independent Ireland. In other words, Ireland had not completely accepted and come to terms with its role in the British Empire. That there were people who still rejected the British presence in Ireland, and, and, and violently so. So the Easter Rebellion saw over 800 people die in the city centre. Uh, the entire north inner city of Dublin is shelled by the British military. And I think this actually symbolises the beginning of the end of British rule in Ireland. You have a civilian city, an English-speaking, very Anglophone city, Dublin, and it's being shelled um, from the, the Keys, uh, as we would call it, the dockside, by, uh, famously by uh, the Helga, a UK vessel, and the north inner city is destroyed. So the leaders of the rising 16 men are executed. Over 400 civilians are killed. And, and what you have is very much this beginning of a new militancy in Irish political and cultural life. This belief is, first of all, it's confusion. Why did these men lay down their lives? What, what are they dying for? And women played a very key role in it. They had their own militant organization called Cumann Naman. And Cumann Naman simply means the women's organization. Uh, Cumann Naman, 270 of them actually fought in the streets of Dublin. And a female commander with the unusual name of Countess Markievicz, she married a, a Polish count. Uh, she was actually a garrison commander in the midst of, of the fighting at St. Stephen's Green. So these are highly unlikely rebels in a very highly unlikely setting because Dublin is very much a city of empire at this time. Uh, in the west of Ireland, where you're still an Irish-speaking community, you're still very much a part of the island that's very clearly different from Britain. Uh, but the fact that it's in Dublin is very, very significant. For the planners and the organisers, this was a sign that the old spirit of Ireland, as they saw it, had not been completely killed off. And uh, by laying down their lives, in what might have been, as some initially saw it as a futile gesture, the actual gamble that they were taking was that they would begin a process, that this was a resurrection that they were going to begin. And by laying down their lives, a future resurrection of the Irish people would be initiated. So this idea of a hopeless rising in the short term that would have a much wider repercussion in the long term as people become uh, engaged with the ideas behind the rebellion actually does come to pass very, very quickly because the Sinn Féin political party, meaning in Irish, we ourselves, becomes the political vehicle uh, for the Irish Republican Army. You have this twin strategy, a political party and an armed wing. In two years after the rising in 1918, Sinn Féin enters the British general election in Ireland on the basis of full independence for Ireland. And they're really running uh, on the um, reputation and the deaths of the, the men and women of Easter Week. They want to stand and represent the rebellion at the British electoral ballot box. Crucially, of course, maybe most unusually, for an election. They go on the policy that elect us to Westminster, to the House of Commons 
And we promise we will never go. Uh, their platform is simple, abstentionism. Elect us to the British Parliament and we promise to stay at home and never enter the building. The Sinn Féin still in Northern Ireland still do that because there's about seven seats. Because they won't ever swear allegiance to the Queen, they'll never take it. Yes, Sinn Féin is still actually uh, the largest party on the island of Ireland. It's the second largest party in the 26 county uh, republic and it is the second largest party in the north of Ireland. And it uh, currently holds the position of vice uh, prime minister, if you like, of Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill. And you're correct. They do not go to Westminster still to this day. This abstentionism. So it has remained a key part of Republican ideology. Oh, hold on. Um, so for Americans who are not clear, Republican in Irish context means somebody who does not want a king. And so that's kind of why it's against their beliefs to swear allegiance to any monarch. <laughs> Yeah, of course, it means something completely different in Ireland. Republicanism in Ireland is based on the ideas of the French Revolution that were adapted by an Irishman um, to suit the Irish circumstance called Wolf Tone, who was executed in a 1798 rebellion. The French and American revolutions really created Irish republicanism, which was the idea that those of different ethnic and religious backgrounds in Ireland, that is Protestants and Presbyterians, Scottish and English, if you like, and then the native Catholic Irish should eradicate differences based on their ethnicity and their religion and their, and their language and form the one common uh, bond of Irish uh, person. So republicanism in Ireland stands for egalitarianism before the law and social equality rather than, of course, uh, American republicanism. As it, well, yes. As it, on Twitter, somebody asked, like, who's a decent Republican? And my answer was Liam Mellows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about Liam Mellows. And do you want to start with the Galloway insurrection? Or do you want to talk about the time before that? Well, I suppose just to give a small bit of background, uh, Liam Mellows is an extremely unlikely figure uh, to become a, a senior Irish uh, Republican leader. He's actually born in a British Army barracks. Uh, his father was a sergeant in the British Army. His grandfather was also a sergeant and served in India, actually. So Mellows is from three generations of the British Army. His father hopes that he would become an officer. Uh, he lives in Dublin and then Cork and a number of other places in the United Kingdom. But he uses his military education. He gets an officer's education at considerable expense from his family. Uh, he inverts these ideas and he applies them to the Irish situation. He commits himself as a young man, actually, to giving his life uh, for Irish independence. He's very much a fanatical view that the only way to win Irish independence was by young people. And his focus was initially on um, Republican Boy Scouts, actually, movement uh, that predated uh, the Irish Republican Army. Uh, for Mellows and others, Ireland uh, and Irish people had very much lost their, their soul, as he saw it. They had become ashamed, essentially, of their Irishness. That Irishness was something backward and inherently negative. So for Mellows and other uh, radicals that he gathered around him, uh, they wanted to start with a clean slate of youth, essentially. And they believed in militarism above all else, that if they could set an example, if they could lay down uh, uh, markers and lay down their lives, as many of them did, that they would inspire others to come and to change. So it's very much a personal journey through republicanism. 
He becomes involved in Nafina Aaron, which were a Republican Boy Scout movement that trained uh, young boys to, to join and to have a different perception of Ireland as, as, a, as a radical separatist state. And then he became a senior commandant in the Irish Republican Army at Easter Week 1916, at the rebellion we mentioned earlier. It was to be a colossal disappointment for him uh, because he had 500 men or so and, and actually over 60 women of Cumann the women revolutionaries, in Galway, in the west of Ireland, under his command. But the arms that were destined for Galway never arrived. They were to land on a British U-boat, the Yod, uh, that was scuttled off the coast of Kerry. And Mellows is left with this army of the rural poor uh, with no weapons, about 38 shotguns or so, uh, facing the British army. So Easter week really uh, turns out to be one of the great disappointments of his life. But the importance of it is that he is forced to go on the run because he's wanted by the British government. All of his close comrades have been executed, killed, exiled, or so on. And I think he's haunted from this point on that he survived and all those others that joined with them so earnestly, uh, many of them, not all, uh, were now gone. Uh, and it's at that juncture he makes his way to New York City on the orders of the revolutionary leadership. Uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the secret society that lies behind the Irish Republican Army, want him to go to New York City and essentially coordinate the Irish revolutionaries in America and uh, very much act as their representative in the United States. So he arrives in New York in January 1917, and it's a fantastically exciting period to be an Irish revolutionary in New York. Uh, hard to imagine now, Mellows and other comrades, and it's interesting how many women speakers are central in this. One of the leaders of the rebellion, a Scottish revolutionary, James Connolly, his daughter, Nora Connolly, becomes a key speaker amongst many other women. They sell out Madison Square Garden on a number of occasions. They sell out huge halls around Manhattan, Brooklyn and elsewhere, giving lectures and talks about the importance and centrality of Irish Americans uh, supporting the coming struggle of the War of Independence. The rising is over and now is the time to, for Ireland to uh, brace itself and prepare for a long guerrilla campaign against the British forces in Ireland. So Mellows will actually remain in New York City uh, until 1920 for nearly four years. Does he get any support from the Irish Americans in terms of arms or money or anything like that? He does, yeah. Um, Irish America had, and uh, until very recently, had a huge significance for Irish revolutionaries. In fact, most key decisions taken by the IRA and Irish Republicans over the last 100 years since the end of the conflict in Ireland uh, a decade or more ago uh, would always have factored in its supporters in North America because the key things they wanted from America for the Irish struggle or for their struggle, there's, I suppose, threefold. They want money, simply. Uh, they want money to support their struggle from Irish Americans. They want weapons. They want rifles and, and so on and they don't care how they get them. They'll smuggle them, they'll steal them, and so on. But thirdly, they want political support. And they want political support, um, they're principally from Irish America, but they do want Irish America to apply pressure on the, the American establishment, uh, which is quite hostile at the time to America's Ireland's claim for independence. So the dream of the Irish Republican Brotherhood who are preparing for a guerrilla campaign in Ireland is that the declaration of Irish 
independence, uh, the 1916 proclamation, which is their blueprint that is read in, 19, in Easter Monday, 1916 at the GPO in Dublin, uh, will be endorsed by the Wilson administration in America because they see that the principles of Irish sovereignty are fully compatible with the Wilsonian principles of self-determination and that America is the great republic and that it will, it will recognise in Ireland's claim for a republic, um, you know, like-minded, just cause, essentially, uh, across the Irish Sea. Did Wilson recognise Irish independence or not really? Wilson had no intention whatsoever of recognising Irish independence. And the simple reason is that his close wartime ally, of course, is Great Britain. So with America and Britain fighting together in World War I, cementing their bond, of course, that continues after the war, there's no, no prospect whatsoever that the American administration will, re will recognise Ireland's claim. However, uh, the Irish revolutionaries can still generate a lot of support from significant figures. For instance, in 1919, Eamon de Valera, who was uh, elected by the revolutionaries as the president of Ireland uh, in their revolutionary counter-state uh, that they've created, it has no international recognition, but they, the Irish themselves, recognise Eamon de Valera as their president. He speaks in a speaking tour across the United States. In Boston, at the home of the Red Sox, he speaks to over 60,000 men and women. In, in the stadium. He speaks to crowds of tens of thousands all over the United States. So Irish America is very, very much behind the revolutionary project at home, principally with their hard-earned dollars. And this is crucial. The Irish struggle, that uh, war of independence, it breaks out in 1919. It lasts until 1921. is funded fundamentally from the, the dollars of Irish Americans, and principally, but not exclusively, in the northeastern United States. Yeah, that's what I've noticed, is that Woodrow Wilson spoke a big game, but in the end, he always sided with the colonial powers all over the world. So, do you want to speak about the Galloway insurrection? Um, or is there something I'm forgetting? I think we could move on, maybe. I think it's, it'd be very interesting to an Irish audience, but I think it's, it's not as dramatic as some of the other events. I think what's interesting maybe to talk about is if you want, if you want to go into the War of Independence. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So while Lee Mellows is stationed in New York, uh, he's generating contacts with revolutionaries, with politicians, but also with very shady arms dealers. Europe is awash with arms in the aftermath of the war. Arms could always be got one way or another in the United States. Uh, he's actually arrested and interned in the Tombs prison, of course. It's so well known uh, because of recent events in lower downtown Manhattan. It's very much a stitch up, a political stitch up to get him out of the way, if you like, because of his activities. But interestingly, while he's held in jail, the mayor of New York was actually the youngest mayor in the history of the city, uh, Mayor Mitchell, uh, John Mitchell. And uh, Mitchell had actually put it about in a speech in Brooklyn that he was pleased that Liam Mellows was in jail and also that Mellows had become an informer. Maybe the most hated thing in Irish revolutionary circles, that he was in jail and he was betraying his comrades. 
Uh, Mellows was so incensed about this, this was in November 1917, that he actually wrote to the Irish-American newspapers challenging Mitchell uh, to a boxing match once he got out of jail. Mitchell declined, actually, uh, unsurprisingly, but uh, Mellows was eventually released from the Tombs uh, prison. But it was a classic example that those behind, really, the plot to have him imprisoned on flimsy evidence were actually Irish-Americans who were alarmed at the activity of the Irish-born revolutionaries in America. And you get this divide that perhaps still exists today of Irish people born in Ireland, living in America, and how they view uh, things at home. And maybe the slightly more conservative and perhaps at times maybe naive view of Irish-Americans, those of Irish heritage born in America, of events in Ireland. So there is a huge divide uh, between the revolutionaries who want warfare at home, who were born in Ireland in the, and living in New York principally, in, in exile, and the more conservative Irish Americans who really are seeking respectability for Irish Americans in America. They want uh, Irishness essentially, as it has become, you know, that Irish people can, within the political establishment, you know, become part of mainstream uh, of the political life of the United States. And Mellows and others, by attacking relentlessly colonialism, by attacking uh, relentlessly Britain's uh, role in world affairs, uh, was damaging any potential that Irish America could, if you like, in, integrate itself into the, you know, the, what had been the Protestant Anglophone character of American politics. Until 1920, Mellows is amongst this coterie of hardcore militants in New York and elsewhere, raising lots of money also raising shipments of arms and, and other uh, um, material for the War of Independence. But he's very much a lonely figure cast out of the, the circles of, of wealthy Irish-American political backers who support Ireland's cause, but they don't want it to see, uh, to see it damage the standing of Irish-Americans vis-a-vis um, the conservative establishment in American politics. This sounds very familiar. It, it reminds me of the Phil Ox song, Love Me, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in 1920, Liam Mellows comes back to Ireland? Yeah, so the War of Independence in Ireland, uh, I suppose technically you'll often hear the starting date of January 1919. But really, I suppose it's, it's, it's January of 1920 when it really... Uh, becomes uh, much more vigorously prosecuted. What it is essentially is Cumann which is the women's auxiliary in, in Irish language, and the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA. And what they're doing is fighting against the Crown forces across Ireland, principally the Black and Tans. The Black and Tans are part of Irish folklore, uh, and they're very much the bogeymen of Irish history uh, for very good reason. The Black and Tans were an auxiliary police force. And why the British sent an auxiliary police force to Ireland rather than the British army was because they refused to recognise the political nature of the Irish struggle. What was happening in Ireland what, what Republicans who were looking for independence of the island of Ireland was actually criminal activity. And therefore, we need to strengthen our police force to deal with crime and criminals. So to do that, they recruited men who were out of work and had fought in World War I. So these are veterans of the Great War in Europe, and they formed this 
um, state militia, the black and tans. They get their name from their khaki uniforms, which were comprised of odds and ends, different pieces of uniform left over from, from World War I. And the black and tans came to Ireland early in 1920, and they soon established a notorious reputation for ill-discipline and violence. And the reprisal policy becomes very much the defining feature of conflict in Ireland. How reprisals worked, it was the counterinsurgency strategy pursued uh, by the British government in Ireland. When the Irish Republican Army attacked the police at a particular barracks uh, or attacked any aspect of the Crown forces in Ireland, the police, unable most often to find the perpetrators, to find the, the Republican soldiers of the Irish Republic, would exact retribution on the community in which the attack took place. So if there was an ambush in a particular town, such as uh, in North County Dublin early in that year, or in my own uh, town of, of Galway in the West, rather than seeking out the perpetrators, the Republican soldiers of the IRA, what I would seek to do was punish the community which they felt give support to the rebels. So reprisals involved the killing of civilians, usually in their beds, the blowing up and the burning down of buildings, houses and shops. In December of 1920, a huge swathe of Ireland's third largest city, Cork, uh, is burnt to the ground by the Black and Tans. Uh, you have men, the use of torture becomes widespread, particularly uh, badly actually in parts of County Galway, my own county, uh, where Republican soldiers in one instance famously, the Lucknan brothers, um, have their fingers hacked off, uh, have grenades set off in their mouths when they're alive, and so on. So the black and tan violence is overwhelmingly against unarmed civilians in reprisal for, uh, and often unprovoked by, it has to be clear, uh, for uh, attacks by the Irish Republican Army. Uh, on the police uh, across the island. So the summer into the winter, particularly of 1920, is a period of immense violence across Ireland. Uh, the state brings in coercion. It bans, for instance, the playing of sporting fixtures, markets, fairs, horse racing, which is very, very popular in Ireland. Uh, it seeks every measure, if you like, uh, to control uh, the resistance of the Irish people to the, uh, uh, to the state. In some respects, this again is a strategic failure on the part of the British government. I would argue, had their response to the IRA's violence been more moderate and more considered, I think actually uh, the level of support the IRA, the revolutionaries themselves received from the wider community possibly would have been less. But because of the atrocities carried out by the Crown forces in Ireland, support uh, for the revolutionaries uh, surged. Uh, and gain huge momentum. Uh, so I would say, just like when the British shelled uh, the north side of Dublin in the Easter Rebellion of 1916, I think the violence of the Crown forces of the Black and Tans against the ordinary Irish civilians was a turning point that really sealed the end, the beginning of the end of British rule in that part of Ireland. It's a war of assassination, essentially. This just reminds me, when you say the Black and Tans, I was just listening to an old Irish rebellion song where they actually make fun of the Black and Tans, where it's like, we're the British Army and we've come to take your land. But they do talk about the Black and Tan uniform and how they just 
come in the middle of the night and trip people in that song. So it was it's very interesting to see that the song was not completely a legend, but actually true. Well, actually, that's a very uh, contemporary reference because the song you're referring to there, I'd urge um, listeners to check it out, Komochi Black and Tans. Yeah. It was from the 1970s by a group called the Wolf Tones. It was written by, by a man in Dublin, Dominic Behan, the brother of the playwright, Brendan Behan, people might be familiar with. He wrote it. It went to number one in the early 1970s when the violence of the British Army uh, was being principally directed in the north of Ireland against the nationalist Catholic people in West Belfast and elsewhere with internment and so on happening, the, the internment of, of, of nationalist people. Uh, it went to number one despite being banned by the BBC. <laughs> it went to number one last year, once again, when a famous English comedian, Alan Partridge, as is known, uh, Steve Coogan, uh, performed it uh, in, a, in a TV show uh, and brought it to, to wide uh, British audiences once again. And it went back to number one once again. So Black and Tans really is, is a reference that every Irish person is familiar with. Come out, you podcast fans. Come out and retweet our show like stands. Show your Twitter crush how you got clapped by Stan Com. Tell them how the tankies made Proud Boys run like hell away. From the green and lovely historically.substack.com. After three years of investigations and inquiries of top scholars, we found the only decent Republicans. Congratulate us by subscribing to historically.substack.com. Okay, so they're here fighting in the War of Independence. And the first thing is that in 1922, there's a treaty and an establishment of a so-called Irish Free State. Yeah, so the key turning point of this period from which we get the modern Irish state is the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And the Anglo-Irish Treaty marks the end of the guerrilla warfare of the War of Independence. So the War of Independence begins in 1919, sees the Black and Tans arrive in 1920, and lasts until the 11th of July, 1921. And during this period, you have flying columns of the IRA. These are guerrilla bands across the countryside attacking uh, the Crown forces all over the island of Ireland. But by the summer of 1921, the British government realised that they needed to come to some accommodation in Ireland. And actually, a lot of the reason for that is America. They know that Irish America is becoming extremely powerful in politics and in other aspects of civic life in the United States. And it can't be seen uh, to be engaging in this violent campaign against the civilian population in Ireland. So America often, to this day, particularly since the 1970s to the 2000s, has put pressure on the British government, if you like, to moderate its activities and its stance towards Ireland. But uh, what it, uh, there's a ceasefire in the guerrilla campaign in, in July of 1921, and negotiations take place. And it's a crucial juncture uh, when Michael Collins, the guerrilla leader, probably the most glamorous figure to emerge from the revolution in Ireland. He's a Cork uh, young man from County Cork. He was a key figure in the War of Independence in Dublin. He'd overseen a whole squad of assassins who were able to liquidate, I suppose, is the terminology they would have applied, uh, the British spy network across the city. He goes to London, he's appointed to the role by Eamon de Valera, the Irish uh, president 
president of Sinn Féin. He sees himself as the Irish president and uh, as part of a negotiating team uh, with the British government. And these negotiations uh, happen over a period of months. And what emerges in the Anglo-Irish Treaty would have been, for the fighters themselves, quite a shock. Because the Anglo-Irish Treaty is a moderate, if you like, vision of a new Ireland. It sees uh, Ireland had already officially been partitioned, has to be pointed out. Northern Ireland existed since 1920, the northern six counties of Ireland. But what it does is it makes what is the 26-county state, the Republic today, uh, essentially a dominion of the Commonwealth of Great Britain. Essentially the same status perhaps as Canada and Australia, broadly analogous. It still has an oath of allegiance to the king as it was at the time to enter parliament. It couldn't raise its own army. It was very much a Commonwealth dominion and something that the revolutionary fighters would not have contemplated perhaps giving their lives for or, or doing the, the deeds that they had done with an aim as moderate as the free state uh, was going to be. So it very much causes a terribly destructive split within the revolutionaries. One group would say the more ideological Republicans decide that this is a stepping stone too far. This is too much of a betrayal uh, of their dead comrades, that they will not be part of any settlement that demands the independent parliament to give an oath of allegiance uh, to the King of England, that this is not the republic that they fought and in many cases died for. On the other hand, we have Michael Collins, the revolutionary leader who had negotiated the treaty, who says, yes, essentially this is a disappointing treaty. Essentially, this is not what we fought for. But if people can hold their tempers and have cool heads, we can use it as a stepping stone, is this phrase, to a republic. This is not what we wanted. It's not what we fought for. But if we accept it, we can build on it and we can in many ways use it to reach our goal further down the line. So the treaty is voted for early in December uh, of 19. Uh, it's debated in December of 1921. It's voted for then in 19 uh, uh, January. And the result is a quite a resounding victory for the moderates led by Michael Collins, that we should accept the treaty with Great Britain. Ireland, the 26-county state, should be a dominion of the Commonwealth with the proviso that we will seek our ultimate goal of a republic uh, once we've established the new free state. However, Liam Mellows, uh, the subject of my biography uh, and others, simply this is too much of a bitter pill to swallow. They argue that essentially, if we establish a free state, we will entrench privilege and we will entrench moderation. And what will happen is the ultimate goal of the Republic will move further and further away from view. That what we're actually doing is betraying our principles and betraying our, uh, the very reasons that they had taken up arms in the first place. So the Irish Republican army actually splits completely in two sides. One side led by Liam Lynch, a fighter uh, from Cork, and on the other side, another Cork man, actually, uh, Michael Collins. And uh, throughout the early months of 1920, a conflict is looming between these two wings of Irish uh, Republican Army, these comrades that had fought and been jailed and been exiled together for so many years. And it actually comes to a head in the last weekend in June of 1922, 
The rebel headquarters, Liam Mellows and others have entrenched themselves in Dublin. This is their headquarters. They're not going to accept the new state. And after a series of events of, uh, uh, that create tension between both sides, uh, the new free state actually shells with heavy artillery the headquarters of the militant wing of the IRA. And you get this completely devastating civil war that really tarnishes the new state and political culture in Ireland for decades between the moderate um, descendants of the IRA that formed the National Army of Ireland, the National Defence Forces, as it's called today, and the more radical wing that is the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, who is loyal to an ideological future state, the Republic, and will not recognise this more moderate Commonwealth dominion. And the civil war actually sees an escalation in atrocity and an escalation in executions uh, by the new free state of the militants. They actually execute, without any civil proceedings, 81 men, the, uh, the, the new free state in the course of the war. There are many more atrocities carried out across Ireland uh, within prisons, um, on hillsides and in homes. Again, it's a war of atrocity of one side on the other, except this time it's Irishman against Irishman, and it's very much men who knew a lot about each other that are now killing each other and that had been in jail together and so on. So the Civil War really has been this thrown this dark shadow over every subsequent development, I think, in modern Irish history, because ultimately the diehards are defeated by the moderate wing of the IRA. The National Army has the support of the majority of Irish people. The more radical wing, uh, the Irish Republican Army, who refuses to accept the compromise of the treaty, which has been democratically endorsed by the Irish people, face uh, a dwindling support uh, on the countrysides and in the towns and in the villages. Uh, but perhaps the most brutal aspect of the period that I mentioned earlier is the reprisal killings. And Liam Mellows is part of the leadership of the IRA, uh, four of them that are taken out on the 8th of December 1922 and are shot dead without any trial whatsoever in Mountjoy Jail in Dublin City. And these were maybe the keenest minds, the most revel the most the men who had, you know, provided most of the inf intellectual firmament of the revolution. And Mellows himself had become a committed socialist. He presented an alternative vision of a republic um, that saw workers' rights and state monopolies on, on, on land and other uh, resources. And his vision for a socialist republic may have, in many ways, contributed to, the, to him being selected by the state uh, for execution in December 1922. So many of the most idealistic and, and some of the most intellectual thinkers uh, of the revolutionary movement of the entire period are essentially exterminated by the new state in its infancy. And, and I suppose this is the great tragedy of the Irish Revolution, uh, that it begins as an anti-imperial struggle and it ends, like I think many anti-imperial struggles do, uh, in a division between the more moderates uh, and the more ideologically committed uh, of the revolutionaries themselves. So the way you mentioned how they had to resume his body two years later and have an actual funeral procession, I recommend everyone read the book for that. But I'm just curious, what happened to the Irish state in the next decade or so? Did the Anglo-Irish Treaty kind of solidify 
the borders and the politics of Ireland, or was there any other major changes? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, in retrospect, obviously you have hindsight and so on, but I think there's a certain degree of naivety in amongst Irish people about particularly the partition of Ireland into the Northern Ireland state and into the 26 county free state. It's called a free state at the time, by the way. It changes its name in 1948 and declares itself a republic. Because what you actually have is this idea amongst the political establishment that essentially the border in the northeast of Ireland would, would essentially in many ways dissolve, that partition would be a failure and that Ireland would be unified at some future date. And that essentially Protestants of British heritage in the north of Ireland in many ways would see sense, this kind of dismissive idea that those of British heritage would eventually reach an accommodation uh, with Irish nationalism and that Ireland would actually be unified in a relatively short space of time. As a matter of fact, what happened in the aftermath of the Anglo-Irish Treaty was that division became much more entrenched in the island because the Unionist Protestant community felt itself under siege in many ways, as it always had in Ireland, uh, from a potential threat emanating from across the border. And if you talk to Irish people today, you'd be surprised how many people, for instance, from the south of Ireland in, and from the west have never been over the border to Northern Ireland. And likewise, if you're in Belfast, you'll find it almost shocking how many few people, in many cases, uh, from Belfast, have never been, for instance, to the two and a half hour, two hour journey to Dublin. The border, rather than something that uh, people have thought would dissolve away, actually has become a, a psychological and a cultural border. Also, I would argue, the second division in Ireland that was created with the foundation of the Free State was this division between the losers of the Civil War, between Liam Mellows and others, who represented the bulk of the Irish Republican Army who fought in the War of Independence. So the very men and women who'd been to the forefront of the guerrilla campaign against British imperialism, the women's movement, coming them on, voted almost entirely unanimously to reject the treaty, to reject moderation. Now, those that had been, in many cases, to jail for long periods of time and suffered, in some cases, torture, they were to be the losers in this entire political settlement because they found themselves excluded essentially from the machinations of power. In many cases, they placed themselves outside of the machinations of power. So there are many divisions on the island in the aftermath of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. There's a division across both sides of the border. There's a division between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. And there's a very much a division between moderates and diehards nationalists within the 26 county free state and the enemy for the free state became not britain or england or colonialism the enemy became other irish republicans and i think for irish republicans they stopped in many ways thinking about ending partition they stopped thinking i think about unifying ireland and became in many ways quite focused on destroying the free state and, and getting retribution, essentially, on the moderates uh, from amongst their own organizations initially and, and uh, undermining the new state rather than, I think, ending the, the British presence on the island of Ireland.
This is what seems to happen with every British partition in that it always helps the British and makes things worse. Like it never dissolves. India, Pakistan is a good example. Um, <laughs> I was thinking the exact thing. It, this is so many echoes around the world, particularly and so obviously India, that and divide and conquer and, and, and so on. Um, I think because to a certain extent the revolution is successful in that at least it creates, I suppose, a Commonwealth Dominion state. The argument for many was, well, was Ireland not going to gain that already without all the bloodshed and the death? Probably not, because British now, don't give away territory. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have got the same settlement, that's clear. But also, I think, loss, profound sense of loss and, and betrayal um, on both sides. Uh, of the, the, the revolutionaries on the moderates who support the free state and the revolutionary militants who wish to stay in the IRA and hope for a republic. And the IRA, of course, remains in existence until, you know, uh, 2004 in Ireland when it dissolved itself finally. So that uh, militant aspect uh, in Irish politics uh, didn't go away um, for, for, you know, 80 years or, or more after the foundation of the state. To me, the problem with something like the IRA dissolving itself, at least in the North, is that we have the Ulsterists and the Unionists who are extremely to the right who haven't dissolved themselves. So there's no balance. Well, I think the situations, loyalist paramilitaries, as they're known from the Unionist community, have traditionally been uh, very right wing. Not all of them. Very um, important figure, David Irvine. People might want to learn about him a bit more. Uh, played a key role of bringing socialist thinking to loyalism. But yeah, largely speaking, unionism has supported right-wing positions, um, you know, historically. But I think anyone arguing for, for physical force in Ireland today is essentially a criminal. No, no I agree with you on yeah. that. But I'm just saying, like, it creates a political imbalance towards the right is what I worry. Um, the legacy of all of this, you know, is silence actually until very recently a very damaging form of silence that people didn't want to talk about the revolution because of the execution of Liam Mellows and others because of the atrocities of Irishmen against Irishmen and that period we'll say of hope and of aspiration and of struggle and commitment was overshadowed by hatreds um, local hatreds between neighbours and between relations brothers cousins husbands and wives and so on and that is the most damaging legacy in the island of Ireland, is that you still have partition, you still have profound social and religious division. By any metric you choose to use, for instance, in the north of Ireland, Protestant and Catholic communities live apart at a greater rate geographically, marry, intermarry uh, less often, and go to school together less often than at other times in modern Irish history. And in the Republic, in many ways, the north of Ireland remains a far-off place that they have very little interest in. And, and this maybe is a direct legacy in some respects of this trauma of the Civil War where people just turn away from the revolution because it brings up too many painful and difficult uh, questions. Do you um, think having a Truth and Reconciliation Commission or something like that would be useful to the culture? 
Yeah, it has been mooted a number of times. Uh, obviously, the South African model of a Truth and Reconciliation Committee was very successful. It definitely will not happen in Ireland. There's no circumstances under which it will happen, simply because the British government has too much to lose by doing so. <laughs> um, it, it won't, it, it's not willing to acknowledge the extent of, its, of, of state terror in Ireland in the modern period, because it would undermine its own... Um, vision of itself to, 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 to great a degree. Too many people have too much to lose by truth and reconciliation, I'm afraid. Powerful people. So what do you see next for Ireland? Well, Ireland's in an interesting period because obviously Britain is um, leaving the European Union. Mm-hmm. And of course, the majority in Northern Ireland voted to stay in the European Union, as they did in Scotland. So England is essentially taking Northern Ireland and Scotland out of the EU, despite their overwhelming support for the EU. So there's potential division and potential turmoil to come. I think the most significant aspect of Brexit is that I think it has sealed, I think, Scottish independence. It certainly has provided a huge impetus for the Scottish independence movement. And I think in Ireland, it has convinced many. It remains to be seen. I I would speculate it has it has prompted some in in the Protestant community to consider more seriously perhaps that their political future might lie in some form of federal or united Ireland, that perhaps they might have a greater political leverage uh, in in a republic uh, or some kind of a federal Ireland that they perhaps have in, in, in the vast United Kingdom where they represent such a small political power, you know. Yeah, to me, that's what I found very curious about Brexit is that majority of it was in proper England and not even in Wales or Scotland. And yeah, and it seems like, I don't know the population difference, but yeah, it it does seem like England is dragging the other. Well, the irony is it's English nationalism that is destroying the United Kingdom. English nationalism is leading directly to the breakup of the United Kingdom. And perhaps in that respect, uh, impetus to the, un- the reunification of Ireland um, because it's, its unwillingness to listen to the vote in Northern Ireland, to, it's un- a complete dismissal of this, the vote for the, in Scotland in support uh, of the European Union, I think has awakened many people to the fact that um, the English political establishment you know, could care less and doesn't understand and, and doesn't, you know, intend to learn anything about, you know, the real nature of, of, of society in Northern Ireland and Scotland. So in that respect, I think English nationalism is, is very much contributing to the future reunification of Ireland and certainly to the, um, to the, uh, to the, the leave, so to Scotland leaving the United Kingdom. So you predict that Scotland will leave in the next few years once this Brexit thing gets... Uh... Yeah, I, I don't think that would be is 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 either unrealistic or or a wild um, prediction. It's uh, you know more or less every political poll in the last uh, two years would suggest that Scotland is 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 in a position to to leave, and that creates a very interesting question in the island of Ireland because many of the Northern Unionist community, whose heritage is is Protestant and heritage is allegiance to the United Kingdom. Uh, culturally and, and politically, um, are of Scottish heritage, very much of Scottish. Even the, the accent and the dialect is, is a Scotch, uh, Ulster Scots, Scots. So if the Scots themselves leave 
the United Kingdom. It's um, makes it interest. It makes it very interesting. But I suppose it, the, the key to the future really is is uh, cooperation on the island of Ireland. And I think from a Republican perspective, is um, the people who see themselves as the uh, descendants, if you like, of the political tradition of Liam Mellows and others, is actually, I think, to convince uh, the Protestant and Unionist community of their good faith and to convince them that any future United Ireland, their civil rights, their identity and their heritage will be protected. And, uh, and I think that is where Irish Republicanism has been its weakest, is that it hasn't been able to reach out to Irish people who see themselves uh, as having a British heritage, who, who have a Protestant identity um, from, from Scottish, Scotland and elsewhere, you know. Do you know why they've had trouble reaching out to Protestants? I think it's, it's, it, it exists on both sides. I think actually the Unionist or Protestant community in the Northeast is perhaps less, even less um, interested in reaching out um, to, to Catholics and Nationalists than maybe uh, Nationalists are to reaching out to, to Protestants. But it's, it's shocking that um, the level of social and political separation in, in Ireland between the, the, the community of, of people of British heritage uh, and Catholic heritage is, is shocking, particularly in Belfast. And um, in that respect, when Liam Mellows talks about uh, we, you know, the importance of social equality in a republic, the importance of workers' rights in a republic, his writings are very, very important and very relevant. But also there's a, an abiding question of, well, how do you convince people in Ireland whose heritage is British that you're not a threat to them. And uh, that's very, very difficult to do, you know. What is the next project you're working on? Yeah, I'm working actually at the moment on a, a survey of the Civil War, actually, of the casualties of the Civil War. Um, the interesting thing is, people talk about this period a lot. Um, people are, but people are very afraid still. It's, it's 100 years. But the reluctance, particularly among older people, to discuss the intimate details of events that happened to their families and in local areas is profound. And you might say to yourself, well, 100 years, for instance, in New York and in, in America, 100 years is a lot longer than it is in Ireland, if you know what I mean. Yeah. In Ireland, 100 years, these are communities that are living together side by side for centuries. Neighbours, literally, living on farms side by side for centuries. Um, so time is understood and seen very differently. So talking about things that happened to your great-grandparents is very personal in Ireland to the extent that it isn't in other more modern urban societies. So my project involves essentially to a reasonable extent that's possible to piece together the lives of each individual casualty of the civil war. Who they were, how they died, but more what are they, you know, as, as people, you know, and, and to create a, maybe a more social portrait of the, of the dead of the Irish Civil War. Because for decades, they were simply not talked about. And I think there's a crucial difference here in conflict, and I'd be very interested in the Indian uh, comparison of violence. There's a crucial difference between not being talked about and being forgotten. You can be very much remembered on, on people's minds, but they'll still choose not to talk about it. Uh, it's not the same thing. And I think in Ireland, we certainly weren't forgotten, 
but they weren't talked about for fear of the pain and anguish it caused. And what that created was uh, a silence over this entire period that we're only now unraveling again. Because I find I get emails from people whose, whose grandfathers and grandmothers were involved, and it's still really deeply personal for them. And uh, you have to be very diplomatic and very careful in the language and, and in every, every way you phrase a lot of your um, descriptions of events, you know. This reminds me of this project where this man, I can't remember his name, but he interviewed Turkish like children or grandchildren in Turkish villages about their uh, grandparents talking about the Armenian genocide. Yeah. And... Yeah, he kind of says it, it, it like there's a deep guilt, as in like some people they say my grandfather watched while we like locked all the Armenians in the cave and shot them. Like so, mm. there the memories there, but no one talks about it. So that, that, that's what I it seems like in terms of similarities. Yeah, I definitely think what you've hit on the nail on the head there, as we'd say in Ireland, is that you and I might assume, as you know, people who love history that someone who has lived through historic events would automatically want to talk about them, would automatically want to share their experiences. But of course, that's not the case whatsoever. People and generations and communities that have been through trauma may have very, very good reasons for not wanting to talk about it. Uh, they might have a whole host of motivations not to discuss them, particularly with some stranger, some outsider, who... You don't know what they might do with that information and, and what they, how they might frame your story. So the reluctance to discuss things and the, the leads very much to uh, these gaps in our knowledge that we're only now tracking down. So I suppose the importance I was trying to do with my uh, book on the period on Lee Mellows was say that these figures are very well known. People in Ireland would have heard of Lee Mellows, even if they're not that interested maybe in the period. But despite being familiar with the figures, uh, much of their lives are deeply obscure for the reason that their comrades, you know, deliberately didn't want these events talked about for many generations. Because maybe because they were so important, because they simply brought up too much pain and trauma and they had too much to lose in some cases by talking about them. So conflict generates poverty, it generates pain and suffering, it generates alcoholism in Ireland. And it also generates walls of silence that we have to try and uh, penetrate. Well, good luck with that. And I'm going to include the link to your book in the description. And anything else, um, thank you so much for coming. Um, we, this was one of the most inspiring interviews I've had. No, I really enjoyed it. And I think the analogy between India and Ireland is something worth you know, looking at very much. There is a book out there. If you want, I'll send you the link. I can't think the name of it off the top of my head. But, you know, there are lots of similarities in, in global anti-colonial struggles that are so obvious and so stark, you know. Exactly. The worst thing about India is that these silence has, the fascists have basically put in their story in terms of the silence with the partition yeah. and blamed the Muslims on everything. So now we have Modi and that's not what India was born to be. So, uh, um the silence has led to a fascist fiction of yeah, what happened there. I, I think that's a really key point. That silence that emerges after, after conflict, you know, something's going to fill that vacuum. And typically, it's a manufactured state narrative. Uh, usually the narrative of the winning 
political establishment. And that's exactly what happens in Ireland, yeah, definitely. That this pattern of uh, colonial domination, then withdrawal, then intersign fighting, and then this fabricated, affected narrative that is used then to, to subjugate the losing uh, faction uh, in the... Uh, in the post-colonial struggle, you know? I guess. I mean, I don't know if anyone lost or won in terms of India because the partition is the way it is. And it, what India lost, how it just empowered the fascists to continue and the right-wing Hindu extremists to just get more and more power. Yeah, yeah. And I think also in that respect, history can be a threat. By discussing history, you are giving sucker to your enemies you're potentially empowering your enemies if you allow people to to engage with their history so in many respects history is a dangerous weapon that the state needs to control and in ireland's state it's a conservative state that really needs to monitor and manage and manipulate its own history for fear of empowering the radicals that they would see as the enemy within their own state and that's the same in England too and in many other states. Thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of the afternoon. We really appreciate your patience. Not all. I look forward to listening to it back. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.